Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I'm your host with the most, Justin Kinney, and I am really excited to be here with you guys for another episode. Now today we're going to be talking about a current event. This is something that took place just last weekend, and it took place in the country of Turkey, or the Republic of Turkey, I should say, that's their official name. Now, a little bit of background on Turkey before we dive into the topic. Turkey is what's considered a transcontinental country. And this means that they span across multiple continents. In Turkey's case, they are partly in Western Asia, with a little bit smaller portion on the Balkan Peninsula in Southeastern Europe. Now, Turkey does have a lot of countries that it borders. I believe there's eight of them, from Greece and Bulgaria to the country of Georgia, Iran and Iraq, Syria, a couple others as well. It's also touched on multiple sides by water. It has the Aegean Sea, the Black Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea. Now, it's in a particularly key position as kind of the gateway between Asia and Europe. And the fact that it has so many countries surrounding it, multiple bodies of water, makes it particularly important. And it also has one city, Istanbul, once Constantinople, which is classified as one of the leading global cities in the world. It's their main cultural and commercial center. Now, in terms of the people of Turkey, they are largely one ethnicity. About 70 to 80 percent of the country's citizens identify themselves as ethnic Turks. There are quite a few minority ethnic groups as well, from Circassians, Albanians, Arabs, Bosniaks, a couple others as well. But the largest minority ethnic group in Turkey are the Kurds. Now, the Kurds are an interesting people group. At some point, I'll have to do an entire episode on who they are. But for right now, it's just important to understand that there is a lot of tension between the Kurds and the ethnic Turks and the Turkish government led by their president, who we'll talk about in a minute. The Kurds are the largest ethnic group in the world that does not have their own country, and they have long wanted their own country. At the moment, they're spread across Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey for the most part. And so they have long campaigned to secede from those other countries and form their own country of Kurdistan. And this has caused a lot of problems in multiple countries, but especially in Turkey. And this tension has not only driven a lot of the policies that the Turkish government puts into place, but has actually led to outright fighting on a couple occasions. There's at least one... Kurdish terrorist group called the PKK, which fights. And the, the Turks have really not treated the Kurds very well either. There's a lot of a lot of repression and a lot of persecution that takes place there. But the reason I want to talk about Turkey in general is because this past weekend they held a really important election. And this was for the office of president or executive president. And the man who won is a man by the name of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And Recep Tayyip Erdogan is a Turkish politician. He's been serving in the capacity of president, more or less, since 2014, although this election really codified it. Prior to that, he served as the prime minister, a role which doesn't really exist anymore. That was from 2003 to 2014. And then his previous political position was as the mayor of Istanbul, which is, as I mentioned, a major city in Turkey, essentially their cultural center, their commercial center, and it's one of the truly global cities in the world. Erdogan is actually a really interesting figure, though. Prior to getting into politics, he was actually a semi-professional football player or soccer player, for those of you Americans out there, before he turned to politics. And in between the time of being the mayor of Istanbul and the prime minister, he actually served four months in prison for promoting a religious view of government during a speech, a particular, a particular religious view of government, I should say. Uh, he recited a poem, and he ended up getting stripped of his position, banned from political office, and as I said, imprisoned for about four months. So he has kind of a unique background for somebody who then rose to become the president of the country. 
But probably the most interesting thing about him is that about 15 years ago or so, when he first came to office as prime minister, everyone loved him, especially in the West, which you would think is kind of unusual. But he was seen as the potential bridge between the Islamist, Islamic Middle East and the Western world. He was the one who was supposed to span that gap between the Islamic culture of the Middle East and the more secular democratic culture of the West. And this was for a handful of reasons. He actually was pretty big on promoting and pursuing democracy for many years early on. Turkey has long sought to join the EU. As I mentioned, they are partly in Europe, and so they want to join the European Union and become more like the idolized Western democracies. But this attitude of people liking him for that potential has really changed, drastically even, and to the point where Erdogan has many detractors around the world, and including even in his own country, his approval rating has slipped under 50%. And this all started probably five or six years ago, more or less, but it really took off about two years ago when there was a military coup attempt in Turkey. Now, this coup was designed to remove Erdogan from power and put another regime in place, but it failed, and in response, Erdogan essentially set out to repress any perceived enemies that he saw in all aspects of society. At first, he declared a state of emergency, which was designed to give him immense powers. It was all done under this claim of security and stability. But the issue is that state of emergency has never been lifted. And this was followed up by last year in 2017 with a nationwide referendum that was issued. It was actually put up for a vote, but it really kind of came from his office, which grants powers to Erdogan that for all intents and purposes, turned him into a dictator and turned Turkey into an authoritarian regime. He claimed that it was gonna bring stability to Turkey after the failed coup. And understandably, that makes some sense, but the powers that it granted him were very widespread and very strong. Uh, first, it gave him control over the judiciary powers in the country, including selecting roughly half of their high court system. It gave him the ability to very broadly make law and to rule through decree. It gave him the ability to appoint cabinet members and other high-ranking officials without any sort of oversight. It essentially abolished the office of the prime minister and of Turkey's entire parliamentary system. It started up this office of the president, but it, probably most importantly, it allows him now to run for multiple five-year terms in a row and combined with a couple other things, potentially keeping him in power until the year 2034. Now, in 2034, he would be about the age of 80, so he's probably on his way out then already. But this is particularly important because that's another 16 years of the same leader being in office, and this is on top of him already being the longest-serving leader of Turkey. So all of these kind of rules and referendums and powers ruled, rolled together turned Turkey from a democracy with frequent elections into essentially a one-man autocracy that's led by Erdogan. And this all came to a head just this last weekend when there was a election for this office of executive president. And reportedly Erdogan received about 52% of the vote, so just over half of the vote, but it was enough for him to win. And it was enough for him to now enjoy all those new powers fully from the referendum and the state of emergency, which again was never lifted and all these other things. So he can now enjoy those new powers in a brand new designed position for himself, executive president. And this is really key because he is the one that's responsible for having these elections right now. The elections were actually supposed to take place in about a year and a half, but he called for them and set them up a year and a half early. And he did this for two main reasons. 
First is that it caught his opposition way off guard. They were unprepared. They did not have candidates in place to face him. And so they were left scrambling to find the right people to start campaigning and those sorts of things made them very unlikely to win because they were not prepared for it this early on. And it also helped him to avoid having to hold elections during a near certain financial crisis that's looming in Turkey right now. Economically, Turkey is really struggling right now. They have high inflation and a weak currency that's really almost going off the edge of a cliff. And there's probably even a worse economy on the way. They have all the markers for it. And so by moving the election up a year and a half, it means that he can be much more likely to win because he's not running in the midst of a financial crisis. They are struggling, but at the moment, they're kind of at the beginning stages of it. And so by moving the election up, he avoids the worst and he made himself much more likely to win. And so now that he's taken this position of power, this more or less makes him even more powerful than the founder of modern Turkey, a man by the name of Ataturk. But despite all this power grabbing, ostensibly, you know, as he argues for the stability and safety of Turkey, Erdogan really does enjoy the election process. He likes the respectability of it. It gives his country legitimacy. It's seen as a democratic election, which he believes puts it more on par with some of the more respected countries in the world in the West. It looks good to the rest of the world as well. But much like you have Putin in Russia or Jinping in China or al-Sisi in Egypt, Erdogan does pretty much everything in his power to ensure that the vote is going to go his way. Now, the referendum and the election obviously were up for votes by the people. But these elections and these votes were hardly free and fair as Erdogan and his party essentially used state resources to try to guarantee their victory. They went through state ownership and censorship of the media. There was a huge crackdown on any Turks who campaigned against the referendum. In fact, sometimes they were even attacked, especially members of the Kurdish friendly party, the HDP. Tens of thousands of people were detained, including journalists. Some of these journalists were even detained for comments on social media. There's one news editor in particular who was convicted in part because he used the word dictator in a social media post to describe Erdogan. Media outlets have been closed by the dozens, and of the ones that haven't been closed, Erdogan has essentially co-opted a lot of them and censored them and put the state in control. Uh, Turkey has, at this point, been accused of becoming the world's biggest jailer of journalists in just the last couple of years. And it's not just the media either. About 100,000 government employees have been fired, and this is in all fields from academia and higher education to the police judges and other aspects of civil society and opposition leaders like for instance the leader of the Kurdish party or the Kurdish friendly party the HDP have been jailed even on what amount to flimsy charges more or less what he tries to do is he he accuses them of either being in league with terrorist groups or in communication with terrorist groups and tosses them in jail on these charges that, as I said are pretty flimsy and on top of all of this too there were a lot of election day rumors that were running rampant of fraud, ballot stuffing, and all kinds of other types of things like that on that day. And the referendum still only passed by a razor-thin margin, and he obviously only won with about 52% of the vote, so about 48% voted for somebody else. And so as he grabs the reins in this new five-year term as president with sweeping new powers, he has a lot of critics who essentially denounced his move as a blatant power grab, and as they slide away from democracy and into autocracy or authoritarianism. But with all of this power consolidation that's taken place and brutal crackdown on opposition, 
you kind of have to ask the question, well, who does vote for him? He obviously did win 52% of the vote. And even if you account for some of that in fraud, that that's still leaves a pretty good chunk of people who actually did vote for him. And the reason for this is multifaceted. Erdogan actually gets a lot of support from the lower classes in particular. He's from a modest background himself. And a lot of times these kind of lower classes see him as one of them. And especially early on in his reign, he was seen and noted in Turkey for empowering a lot of these poor, disenfranchised groups. Turkey saw this big economic boom early on due to some infrastructure changes that he implements, building things like more roads and airports and trains, etc., which lifted a lot of people out of poverty. As I mentioned, he was also seen as kind of more moderate religiously, too. And so this early support from these lower classes has carried over with many of those people viewing him as one of them, as a savior that helped them rise out of poverty. And you have a lot of people, not only in Turkey, but also kind of across Europe in certain pockets that were very thrilled to see Erdogan win again. Now, as long as we're talking about support for Erdogan, I think it's important to talk about one other kind of point of interest. And this is that Erdogan actually is the 2010 winner of an international prize for human rights which seems like a very odd award to give to somebody that I've just been talking about as a budding dictator with some massive violations on free expression, free speech, etc. And that's because this award was founded by the Libyan People's Congress in the late 1988. The first award came out in 89, and it's actually called the Al-Gaddafi International Prize for Human Rights, named after Muammar Gaddafi if you remember, was the dictator in Libya up until 2011. And actually, the prize was discontinued after his death uh, when Gaddafi was overthrown and killed during the Libyan Civil War. Now, this is an award that it's not a parody. It's a legitimate award given by the Libyan People's Congress. And it's been given to a number of people over the years, including many that you would recognize. Uh, the very first winner was Nelson Mandela. But they are also famous for giving awards to quite a few, shall we say, controversial figures from Luis Farrakhan to Fidel Castro to uh, Hugo Chavez. And most recently, the last award that was given in 2010 was to Erdogan of Turkey. And this has become kind of a, an infamous list to be on because of some of the other names that exist on here. But it does kind of speak to the support that Erdogan does have from certain people groups that also tend to revere these types of people. But despite these celebrations that we saw took place, you know, this is clearly a step away from a lot of the political reforms that he had been pursuing early on. As I mentioned at the beginning of this, Turkey was very interested in joining the EU. But the EU has a lot of these conditions that they put into place for members, uh, mostly around democratic transitions, political reforms, and that sort of thing. But Moves that Erdogan has taken recently have really veered away from those type of reforms that were conditions of that offer to join the EU and away from the promise of any sort of democratic moves on behalf of Turkey into more of an authoritarian approach to politics that he seems to be pursuing of late. You know, Turkey today looks a lot less like those secular European Western democracies that he had so wanted to join early on and a lot more like the one man autocracies that you find in other parts of the Middle East. And so this man who analysts once saw as kind of a, a potential model or a bridge for the Arab world to connect with the Western world of Europe and the Americas has really become much more of a case study in authoritarianism. And how do you move from 
demo, uh, from democracy and democratic governments to authoritarian autocratic regimes. And in particular, this is seen as a huge blow to freedom of, pre uh, to freedom of the press and freedom of expression. Uh, the Turkish media landscape has changed drastically. Amnesty International says that there's about 120 journalists that are still imprisoned a couple years later after the coup. And there's some questions to whether or not Erdogan ever plans to release them. And this has even raised some questions about the alliances that they have with overseas allies, in particular the NATO alliance. Under Erdogan, you know, Turkey is a part of NATO, but they've essentially become NATO's most troubling member, most problematic member, because there have always been kind of these cultural tensions between the two. But now you see these shifts away from democratic ideals that most of NATO adheres to. And you've started to see Turkey even start to cozy up with countries like Russia and Iran. Turkey recently caused some rumblings among their NATO allies when they purchased a bunch of long-range missiles from Russia, and they've essentially agreed to install a Russian missile defense system in their country. And this obviously comes at a time, too, when Russia is starting to regain its strength that it lost when the Soviet Union fell. Uh, Moscow is starting to flex its muscles under Putin and move into the Middle East with Syria in particular, but also there's been issues with Europe and the United States that have butted heads a little bit with Russia as well. And so the alliance system that Turkey has built through NATO is starting to become a little shakier. And Turkey's path to joining the EU, which they really wanted to do at one point, has started to drift further and further away. You know, they applied to join the EU, actually the the forerunner, the original EU before it became the EU, about 30 years ago. And there have been talks that have gone on, on and off ever since. And these talks have always been difficult. There's always been tension there. As I mentioned, there's some big cultural differences between the two worlds, the Middle Eastern Islamist world and the more secular Western world. And if Turkey was to join the EU, they would essentially become the most populous country in the European Union overnight. And there's understandably some countries in Europe that are concerned about that because that would mean some huge shifts culturally for the organization. And so while Turkey has frequently fought to join the EU, this is becoming more and more unlikely because of the shift towards authoritarianism, especially in the last couple of years. Now, uh, despite the move towards authoritarianism, we have seen a couple smaller groups pop up that may be able to hold some sway and influence. In particular, the HDP, that pro-Kurdish party, apparently managed to gather more than 10% of the vote. And this is really important because in the Turkish electoral system, the threshold that you need to enter parliament and to hold seats is 10%. And I think they got like 11 or 12%, which means that they're going to have about 65 to 67 seats in parliament. And this is really, really huge for the Kurds because many of their leaders have been running the camp their campaigns from behind bars. As I mentioned, they've had quite a few people who have been kind of thrown into jail on these flimsy charges and multiple HDP leaders were among those. And this gives them a, at least a small bit of influence in parliament that they haven't had before. So even though the HDP and the Kurds saw their essential biggest opposition win in a resounding margin, I think the next closest group was like 33%. So, so like a 19% difference. We actually saw a lot of celebration from the Kurds and the HDPs because they managed to hit that 10% threshold and gain some influence in parliament, which could potentially help mitigate some of the powers that Erdogan gained through his win. Now, going forward, however, there's still quite a few things to keep an eye on. As I mentioned, the Turkish economy has been really struggling. They're in very risky territory. 
The currency has fallen dramatically since the coup in 2016. Interest rates are sky high, and it's not, there's no real signs that this is going to get any better anytime soon. On top of this, too, you have Turkey that's involved in the Syrian civil war, which takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money that they're pouring into this fight. Uh, and then you also have, as I mentioned, some questions about alliances. A lot of these traditional allies in Europe and through NATO have become concerned. You know, they've seen this slide from democratically elected leader to a pseudo-democratic dictator, and it hasn't gone unnoticed. You have, you know, Ankara sliding into autocracy and complete with human rights abuses, violations against freedom of expression, and potential alliances building with Russia and Iran. You know, as I mentioned, Erdogan even pledged to install this Russian missile defense system within their borders. And so you have this country, Turkey, which once hailed Western democracy as this desired ideal. He was once hailed as this potential bridge between cultures, but he's become something much different. And this is something that needs to be very closely monitored by not only the EU, uh, NATO, but the United States and other countries around the world. And with that, I think we're about out of time. So I'm going to go ahead and end the episode there. I really appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. If you're interested in supporting me or this podcast, please hit me up on Facebook and Twitter. Hit subscribe and keep listening. So until next time, I'm Justin Kinney. This is Nutshell Politics, and I'm out. Thanks, guys.